Would you turn in your copy of Scripture, friends, to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. We're going to be in the same text that Christy read earlier, and I trust that as we listen to God's Word, God will speak to us. I'll read it again here in a little bit. But some of you know that, that my sons started college this fall. I've talked about it a fair amount. And, and I find myself having all these flashbacks about my own experience as a college freshman. Anybody relate to that? You kind of live vicariously a little bit through your kids. I, I remember talking to one of my sons this week uh, about his science class. And I, I remembered my own experience with science in my university experience. I, I, I had to take several gen ed courses. And there were 10 credits in my degree degree program that were required to be in the science realm. And because science wasn't really my thing, I didn't take a lot of science in high school, I, I scanned through the booklet with my, my finger running over the tabs. It was a paper copy back then, trying to find the easiest science class that I could possibly take. And as I, I perused through the registration booklet, I found this class that I thought would be perfect for me. It was called astronomy. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? Who doesn't love sitting out in the, in the night sky, looking up at the stars? I thought, maybe I, I could learn a little bit about that. This is going to be easy. Let's go for it. And I, I, I'll, how hard can it be? Now, what I didn't realize is that next to astronomy was this other word that I was much less familiar with. Physics. <laughs> physics 110, in fact. And, and I didn't know anything about physics. And so as I started the class, my optimism quickly diminished under an onslaught of formulas and, and physics that kept my head spinning, particularly when my prof started teaching about black holes and how black holes could bend not only light, but also time uh, in, in this kind of time-space continuum thing that I, I just had a really difficult time understanding. I'm kind of impressed with myself that I can remember how to say time-space continuum, all right? But, but I remember him talking about all these things. I just couldn't get my head around what he was saying. You ever been there? You ever had your brain just kind of fried by a, by a concept or by material that's out there and you just can't quite compute what's going on around you? Maybe you're in a new task, in a new job, and it's just not making sense. Or, or maybe you're a student and your class load is overwhelming. Maybe you're a medical professional and you've got a case that isn't going by the books and you can't figure it out. Maybe you're a farmer and it's been a perfect growing season and you did everything by the book and yet your yield isn't what you expected. You know, we experience these kind of cognitive conundrums in a variety of ways, don't we? And friends, as the first century wore on, I'm convinced that many of its inhabitants had similar cognitive conundrums about a man from Galilee named Jesus. This man who showed great promise, this man who did all kinds of miracles and signs and everybody got excited about, but then he died on a Roman cross. And it was, it, was, it was confusing. See, on one hand, there were the Jews, and they'd been reading about the coming of a Messiah who, whom they expected to set them free from Roman oppression. And, and here this man, Jesus of Nazareth of all places, gained such great prominence. His teaching was off the charts. The miracles that he did were inexplicable, except that he was something sent from God. And, and, and so they were confused because in the end, he died such a humiliating death. And even more so after AD 70, when, when Jerusalem and, and its temple were ransacked and destroyed by the Romans, they were even more devastated. See, they didn't understand the cross. They couldn't get their heads around the fact that someone claiming to be the Messiah could endure such shame. And here they were, their, their country and their culture in ruins, and they, they didn't know what to do. Now, on the other hand, there were those more of a Gentile persuasion who, who were following Christ, and yet 
they were becoming increasingly influenced by various forms of thinking about Jesus that weren't true to what he revealed about himself. They were heretical teachings, things like, things like Gnosticism, which viewed the physical as lesser than the spiritual. And because Gnostics viewed the physical as lesser than the spiritual, it started to create doubts in people's minds about Jesus being fully God and fully man. Another heresy that was starting to develop was Docetism, which basically said that Jesus did not exist physically. He only looked like he did. Okay? So there's these, these, these kind of crazy heretical teachings that are rising up. And in the midst of these cognitive challenges for, for Jews and for Gentiles alike, it's likely that there was a group of elders in Ephesus who put out a request to a sage old man named John who had been living and ministering among them. And they asked John to help them make sense of what was going on around them and in particular to make sense and to offer clarity about who Jesus really was, who Jesus really is. And see, John was something of an expert in that field, okay? John was one of the first fishermen to be called by Jesus to be one of his disciples. Uh, John lived with Jesus for three years in his public ministry. John was called the one that Jesus loved. He was also called a son of thunder. <laughs> he, he grew a lot in his time with Jesus. He, he was present at the transfiguration. He was present at the crucifixion. He was a witness both to the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. John had been around. John knew Jesus. And so now, after 50 years following Jesus' ascension, after witnessing many of his closest friends and fellow apostles and disciples, die for their faith, after seeing Jerusalem fall and, and yet watching this gospel movement spread throughout the Roman Empire like wildfire, John was the ideal candidate to bring clarity to Jesus. And so as these heretical rumblings began to create more and more turbulence in an already upset environment, when, when the Ephesian elders asked John to step in, I'm convinced that John jumped at the chance. Now, as John considered what was already written by the other apostles, by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the, these other gospel writers, these, these men who had written what we call the synoptics, uh, John understood from the Spirit that there was more to the ministry of Jesus than had been previously recorded. And so he sets out to write a very different gospel from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's the same, same history, same person, but a different perspective, and, and, and arguably a different purpose. And what is that purpose? Well, John tells us right there in the book. It's to speak into this cognitive dissonance about who Jesus is, to bring clarity to his identity, but not just that. See, John writes very explicitly in John 20, 31. This is a verse that you may want to memorize that we're going to be coming back to throughout our series in John. In John 20, 31, John says this, and it's really important for us to grasp this. He says, but these are written, these words, this gospel are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you may have life in his name. See, John's burden is to correct this, this slippery edge that's leading people into heresy away from Christ. But it's not just for academic precision. 
It's not just an academic exercise. See, John was a witness of Jesus. John knew what Jesus was capable of. And John knew that Jesus' mission wasn't simply to reveal truth about God in some didactic sort of propositional sense. But John knew that Jesus' mission was to bring life to dead places. And so he wrote that by believing, you may have life in the name of Jesus. Friends, the struggle to think rightly about Jesus isn't limited to the first century, is it? It's not limited to the first century. We in this age also struggle. See, many in our time claim allegiance to Christ, and yet we do not align ourselves in accordance with his name. It's popular to affirm several aspects of who Jesus is, and yet to reject what he really taught. And so it's with this in mind, friends, that, that for this next season here at Cornerstone, we're, we're going to pull everything we can out of John's gospel about the man, Jesus Christ. We're going to sit at his feet. We're going to let him sharpen not only our minds, but also invigorate our souls as we learn and as we grow together. And with that, let me pray toward that end. Lord, I long for you to do this, to teach us how to, how to trust you more to understand you more, Jesus. And by that, as we witness your miracles, as we hear your teaching, as we hear what John has to say about you, God, that not only would our minds be sharpened, but our hearts would be enlivened and invigorated with all that you have for us, such that we might bring you glory and such such that the world might be changed. God, thank you. Speak to us now as we study together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Friends, would you pull out your copy? And let's read together. Let me encourage you to follow along. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, I want you to notice the first phrase here in verse 1. It sound familiar to anybody? John writes, in the beginning, right? Now, it wouldn't have been lost on his, in his readers the connection that John is making to the Old Testament, to the book of Genesis. And of course, if you've been around here at Cornerstone for the last several months, you know that we studied Genesis this summer. And so Moses writes, in the beginning, at the, in, at the beginning of the book of Genesis, so too John writes, in the beginning, at the beginning of his gospel of, of John. And he says, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Moses wrote, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John writes, in the beginning was the Word. And it's clear as we we continue in this passage that the reference to the Word is a reference to Jesus Christ. Okay, There's really no debate about that among scholars. In fact, in verse 17, John would clarify. He'd say that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He sort of unpackages, okay, in case you didn't get it, this is what I mean by the Word. Jesus is the Word about which we're speaking here. There's really, again, no debate. But church, as we discovered in our study of Genesis... God exists before the beginning of time. In the beginning, God was. God pre-exists creation. And John's point here as he begins his gospel is that just as God the Father pre-exists creation, so too does God the Son. So too does Jesus. See, here in the beginning, with God was the Word. Jesus 
like the Father has always existed. <laughs> Jesus is the eternal Word. He's the eternal Word. And friends, there, there is no life in Christ until you accept that Jesus is fully God in all of His, uh, his, his substance and His essence, including His eternality. <laughs> D.A. Carson says, Only the Son of Man has been to heaven, and therefore can speak what no other human being knows. Only He is the link between heaven and earth. There in the heavens, before the beginning of time, stands Father, Son, and Spirit, presiding over all creation together. <laughs> this is Jesus, friends. Jesus is eternal. Now then, notice John's introduction of the eternal word here in verses 1 and 2. I suggest there are three primary things to note. First, look at the title again that John gives to Jesus. Hey, we've talked about this, now let me explain it. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. John refers to Jesus in the Greek as, as the Logos, as, as the Word of God. Now, in Greek thinking, Logos was this idea of reason, of, of rationality. It's the word that they used to explain the purpose and the order of the universe, of the cosmos. And for many in Greek thinking, it had a divine nature. In fact, Around five centuries before John writes his gospel, the Greek philosopher Plato said this about Logos. He said, it may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, a Logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. <laughs> Friends, that's astounding. Five centuries before John writes this, before Christ, uh, Plato understands that through the Logos will become a revelation of all mysteries, that things will become plain. R Richard Phillips makes a striking observation about this. He says, in a stroke of divine genius, John seizes on this word and he says, listen, you Greeks, the very thing that has most occupied your philosophical thought and about which you've been writing for centuries, the, the Logos of God has come to earth as a man. <laughs> and we've seen him. That thing which you've been waiting for, that this rationality, this revelation of God and his purposes, he's been here. <laughs> and his name is Jesus. Church, this name for Jesus, Logos, Word, captures like no other word the revelational aspects of Jesus' life and his ministry. Jesus reveals the mysteries and makes God plain to us. The Word of God, once delivered to and through the prophets, is now made known through the life and the ministry of the Son, of the divine Logos, of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3 says, But in these last days He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Jesus, according to D.A. Carson, is God's divine self-expression. Again, Philip says, we all reveal ourselves through our words. And in Christ, God's speech is most eloquent. God's revealed himself through his son. Jesus reveals the Father in his glory, in his goodness, in his power, in his majesty, in his wisdom. Jesus reveals the Father to us. You want to know God? You, know what, you want to know what God is like? You want to make sense of him? Look at Jesus. That's what we're here to do. That's what we're going to do in these next several months. The eternal word, Jesus Christ, is revelational. But not just that. Notice the second phrase in verse 1. John writes this. He says, In the beginning was the word, 
And listen to this. And the word was with God. Okay, The word was with God. Friends, John makes a clear reference to the relational aspect of the pre-existing word here. The word was with God. What does that tell us? It tells us that the word is distinct from God. Okay? You can't be with God if you're not, not somehow distinct from God. In church, there are those even today who claim that Jesus is simply a mode of the Father. That, that like the character Mystique in the Marvel Universe, he simply changed his appearance. Remember that blue woman in Marvel Universe that can be whoever she wants to be at any time? Right? Some of us think, like Jesus, think Jesus like that. That, he, that when he stepped out of heaven, he simply changed modes. He wasn't a different person. But friends, John makes clear. Jesus is not some shapeshifter originally in the form of God. No, he, he's a person who stood in the heavenlies with the Father since the beginning of time. He, he's relational. He's with God, speaking to the Father in eternity, along with the Holy Spirit. They were together. And they still are. Jesus now sits at the right hand of the throne of God. There's a relational aspect to the, the word here. But not only is the eternal word revelational, not only is it relational, not only is he relational, but there's also, and I'm going to use this word, an existential aspect of what John writes here. Jesus exists as something. And see, John gets to the very nature of Jesus' identity. Jesus exists not only in relationship to God, but also as God. Not only in relationship to God or with God, but also as God. And so again, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Church, the term for was here in this, in, in, in this passage is the same root term that, that God uses in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe himself to Moses in Exodus 3.14. Uh, God said to Moses, look, at the burning bush, he says, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am, same word, John makes very clear, the word doesn't just have traces of the divine. Jesus just wasn't just divine-like. Jesus didn't just reflect the Father or reveal the Father. Jesus was divine. He is divine. He is God. And in this, we have the, the, the beautiful underpinnings of, of a clear Trinitarian doctrine here. John's going to make this more explicit as he continues to write, but, but I want you to make no mistake here. Father and Son and Spirit are one in essence. They're one in substance. They're all God. They share equally in their Godness, but they're distinct in their personality and in their role. <laughs> they always act in concert. They're always for one another, and yet they're distinct. Hence, the word the word can be God existentially. He can exist as God while at the same time being with God, being relational. This is Jesus, church. All that in verse 1, right? Now, some of you may not be able to articulate that right back at me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some thoughts about that um, towards the end of our message. But friends, I want to ask you this, and I want you to affirm this. Was Jesus God? Yes. Was Jesus a different person than the Father? Yes, yes. Did Jesus reveal the Father? Yes, you got it. Okay, that's what we're getting out of this verse here. This is who Jesus is. And John wants to make very clear some of these heresies, some of these aberrant forms of thinking that are rising up in the first century. He wants to say, look, 
I'm telling you who Jesus is, and I'm going to prove to you over the next uh, several chapters, over the whole book, that these things are true, okay? That these things are true. Now, as we'll see, there's a lot more to discover about Jesus. The the eternal word reveals God, he relates to God, and he exists as God. Verse 2 essentially recaps that in shorter terms, but but there's more to the word. I want you to look at verse 3. John writes, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Church, Jesus is the eternal word, yes, but he's also the creative word. He's also the creative word. The text says that every created thing was made through the word. Every created thing was made through Christ. The the verse we read earlier in Hebrews chapter 1 says that God has spoken to us by His Son through whom also He created the world. Church, Jesus was intimately involved with all aspects of creation. He was involved with every detail. (laughs) That means if you don't like your body shape or your IQ or even your gender, friends, you're, you're dealing with the creator of the universe. You're dealing with the one through whom all things were made, with Jesus. And Jesus loves what he made. You can trust him. Church, there isn't anything in all creation that wasn't spoken into existence through the word of Jesus Christ. Mark Bailey, one of my profs and longtime president at Dallas Theological Seminary, said it this way. He said, the confrontation every person has with creation is a confrontation with Christ. It's powerful, isn't it? Be wary of of, of disregarding creation, both as it pertains to you personally, how God has created you uniquely, but also as it pertains to the world in which we live. Creation is Jesus' doing. (laughs) And when you mess with it, you mess with Him. Right? Last week, I attended a missions conference in Phoenix with one of our partners, Bill Like. It was a great conference. I learned so much about what God is doing in the Muslim world. Lord willing, I'll unpack that in different ways for you in the future. Friends, God really is making a huge impact in the Muslim world, and it's exciting to think that we can be a part of it. But, but after the conference, uh, Bill invited Josh Smith, one of our elders, who's also one of the leaders of our mission team, and I to, to go with him, to accompany him on a backpacking trip in the Grand Canyon. Okay? And if you know me, uh, you know that any sort of outdoor adventure, I'm in, right? I, I'm, I'm all in on that. And so uh, it was an incredible experience. Uh, on top of being terrified at these massive cliffs uh, and, and the reality that if you misstepped just a little bit, you might plummet to your death. Uh, I, on top of that, I was in awe of what I saw. I mean, here the creative glory of the Father expressed through the Son constantly took my breath away. And though the Grand Canyon doesn't reveal everything about Jesus, it certainly has his fingerprints all over it. It's beautiful. Church, Jesus is the eternal word. He's the creative word. Jesus breathes creation into existence. And then look what else he does. Look at verse 4. It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Church, Jesus is the eternal word, he's the creative word, and he's also the life-giving word. He's also the life-giving word. Jesus is going to say in John 10.10, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. (laughs) Now, 
given what we've just understood, that, that Jesus is the creative word, that it was through him that all things were made, it's right to understand that Jesus is the source of all life in creation. We view life as precious in relationship to Jesus. Jesus is the source of life in creation. Leon Morris says, it's only because there is life in the Logos that there is life in anything on earth at all. Life does not exist on its own right. Life comes through Jesus. All that lives and breathes and grows is alive because of the Word. Because of Christ. And hear me on this, church. The the life that Jesus gives doesn't stop in the created world. In fact, it, it stretches beyond this life to salvation. And it's this salvific, this spiritual life that later Jesus would refer to when he writes, or when he says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, that there's physical life, and that, that is part of Jesus' creative, uh, creative power expressed. There's physical life. It is precious. It's sourced in Christ. But there's also spiritual life, which I would argue is even more precious and can only be found, as we'll see next week, by believing in Jesus. See, Jesus is the light that leads mankind out of darkness. He's the light that leads mankind out of darkness. Craig Keener says early Christians came to consistently apply the image of transition from darkness to light to a transfer from Satan's realm to God's realm at a believer's conversion. The light produces new, salvific, spiritual life in Christ, free from the the tyranny of Satan and alive to the fullness and majesty of God. I think we sang about freedom in God earlier this morning. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Church, the Word is eternal. The Word is creative and the Word is life-giving. But not only that. See, as the life-giving and light-illuminating word, friends. John writes this in verse 5. He says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Church, the light-giving word is also the overcoming word. I mentioned the Grand Canyon, and, and, and on our first night, we were camping down near a creek deep in the heart of the canyon. It wasn't all the way down to the, uh, to the Colorado River, but it was very, very far down in, maybe three or 4,000 feet below the rim. And, and, and it, was, it was beautiful. There were high bluffs all around us. I kept feeling like I was there in Middle Earth in J.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, right? It was, it was really neat. And the sky was clear and the moon was going to be full and we were waiting on it to rise. But, but as great as that was, we actually had to deal with some adversity in our party, in our group. See, uh, towards the end of our hike, a couple of the guys started lagging behind. And, and there came a point of decision. We either wait for those guys uh, to catch up or we keep pressing on because if we don't, we're not going to find water. And if you don't have water in the desert, that can be problematic, all right? So we made the decision to keep pressing on in order to find water in hopes of helping to figure out what to do with them later. But as a result, our our leader, Bill, had to go back and to find the two people after uh, we got to where we were going. So we descended about 4,000 feet. It was about six miles, and and Bill had a hike ahead of him. 
And on top of being exhausted from that, that hike, the primary complicating factor was that by now it, had, it started to get dark. It was dark in the Grand Canyon. And we knew how treacherous the trail was during the daylight. I couldn't imagine taking that trail in the dark, and yet that's exactly what Bill had to do. And so as the three of us, who wouldn't have been any help because we would have just slowed him down, sat next to the creek bed in in the, the, the depths of the canyon, Bill ventured out. And he went to, to look for these two guys that were lost. And, and we prayed and, and we sat and we tried to keep each other uh, company as we waited on what the Lord would do. And as the night pressed on, I noticed something up on the bluff in front of us that caught my attention. See, the moon was rising and we were deep in the heart of this canyon. And, and, and as the moon rose up behind us, it started to peek up over the edge. And there on the bluff in front of us was just a sliver of light. You could see the moon very clearly painting light up on the bluffs in front of us. And over time, probably over the next 45 minutes to an hour, that that line of light started to come closer and closer down on us as the moon rose higher and higher over the bluffs behind us. And pretty soon the canyon was full of moonlight. And I remember sitting there just, just thinking, wow, God, you're the creator of the sun and the moon and the stars. And, and you have the ability by your own power and according to your glory to fill up this massive, unthinkably large canyon with all the light that's necessary. And we could trust God for our friends and for, for Bill. Friends, Jesus is the light and life-giving word. <laughs> Jesus specializes in filling up canyons with his glory. He overcomes the darkness. We're going to see the light and dark motif all the way through our study in the Gospel of John. John's going to remind us, hey, I know things get dark. Remember that valley of the shadow of death we talked about a couple weeks ago in Psalm 23? I know it gets tough, but you've got to know who you're dealing with here. Jesus is the light. He's the light giver. Jesus, the divine word, overcomes the darkness. Mark Bailey says, light is not simply the absence of darkness. But spiritually, it's the enemy of darkness. <laughs> and friends, whomever Jesus opposes, loses. <laughs> Evil does not win in the light and glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Church, many of our experience causes us to have some cognitive dissonance about Jesus. And see, in trying to make sense of him, we, we tend to pick and choose those aspects of Jesus that are most comfortable some of us who love food can't get enough of, of Jesus feeding the 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes, right? Others of us who maybe have some things in our past that we're ashamed of are drawn to the story of Jesus defending the adulterous woman and looking right at the Pharisees and saying, hey, you who never sinned, you are the ones that cast the first stone. You know, others of us uh, need, to, to, need to see Jesus in his power and his glory. And so the transfiguration, when Jesus is up on the mountain and the glory of God is revealed and everything is brilliant white, us, others of us are drawn to that. But friends, I'm here to tell you, John is going to demonstrate. Jesus reveals the glory of God in those instances, but he's not limited to any single one of them. He's the whole deal. He's the whole package. Jesus comes not in part, but as a whole. And church, there, there may be aspects about Jesus that challenge you these days. I want, to, I want to invite you with me to sit at His feet, to examine His character and His nature and His actions, 
and to grow more deeply in love with this man who is the eternal word, who reveals God, who relates to God in Trinity and exists as God with all the fullness therein. I want you to get to know the creative word, the one who presides over all creation. The first miracle in the Gospel of John has to do with creation. We're going to see that. I want you to experience the life-giving word. You ever feel like life gets sucked out of you by different things? Jesus is the life giver. You ever sense the darkness presses in around you and you're not quite sure what to do? Jesus overcomes darkness with light all the time. He's really good at it. And he invites you to experience that in your own life. Friends, Jesus came for you. We'll see in a, in a couple weeks, Jesus put on flesh for you. And in that, he suffered and died so that you could know the Father, so that you could participate in his glory for all of, for all of eternity. Do you love this man? I hope you do. And I hope as we sit at his feet together, you'll grow to love him even more. Because friends, he loves you so much. You're going to see that in the Gospel of John. Now, I want to challenge you with several specific applications as we close our time together here this morning. Okay? And the first is this. I want to challenge you to be in the gospel during our time together. It won't take you long to read the passages. I want to encourage you, before you come on Sunday morning, spend a little time reading. I, I always publish what we're going to study in, in the shout out. So if you're not yet a subscriber there, go ahead and subscribe and, and just look ahead and spend some time in the text, letting the Spirit of God start to speak to you. And then I, I just want to encourage you. Sometimes we shy away from saying this, and I understand why. You don't get points with God for showing up to church on Sunday, okay? It's not how God works. You don't check a box. But, but I want to challenge you in our study and this is really a helpful practice for whatever we're studying. But, but stay tuned. And, and, and not because my words are all that amazing. Maybe they're not at all. Maybe you think, do I have to listen to that guy? That's fine. But, but I want you to stay in the gospel. And, 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 and I'm convinced that these gospel writers, there's not a, and, and it really in the whole Bible, there's not a single word that doesn't matter. <laughs> and so let the Spirit of God speak to you through the whole text. And if you miss a Sunday, that's okay. But, but tune in. We've got all these great ways to tune in. You can be on the podcast or on Facebook or on YouTube. And, and let the Word of God just saturate you about this person, Jesus, as we study this together. Okay, that's, that's one. That was a lot, but one application, right? Second, I, I want to challenge you, if you're not already, get in a group that will help you. Friends, we're not designed to be Lone Ranger Christians. And, and I love that, that Jess and, and Zach have dived in and started to participate in a life-giving group that's helping them to know and love Jesus more as it helps them know and love each other more. <laughs> and that's the way it works, friends. So if you're not in a group, let me challenge you to, to get in one. Third, I, I want to challenge you this week to have one conversation at least with someone else about what you heard. And it might be that the, a conversation that said, you know, when Andy started talking about physics and things that are hard to understand, it didn't get any better after that. I didn't understand a thing. Can we talk about it? All right? I, I bet it's not that. 
I bet it's, it's, it's something like, you know, when, when, when we were reading that text, the Lord just kind of said something to, to me, and can I share it with you? And that might be with your spouse, it might be with your kids, it might be with a coworker or a neighbor or a friend, whomever. Just have one conversation this week. And then finally, ask yourself this question. What, what changes for me this week? Because Jesus is who John reveals him to be. What changes for me? That Jesus is the eternal word of God. That Jesus is the fullness of God, always having existed as God in Trinitarian relationship with the Father. What changes for me about how I view creation, how I view myself as a created being, how I view others, how I view the world around me because Jesus is the creative word. What changes for me because Jesus is the life-giving word? How do I need to draw on him and where am I seeking life apart from him? And how do I think differently about the darkness that's in my life knowing that Jesus is the overcoming word? That Jesus wins. That the light of Christ penetrates all darkness. And you can trust him with every aspect of who you are and of those you love. He's the overcomer. You can trust him, friends. Again, John's going to prove that to us as we continue to study. Let's be a people who love Jesus with heart and soul and mind and strength these days and always. I will tell you, praise God, Bill found those guys about a mile off. He saw their spotlight. And again, that that light penetrates the darkness. And he was able to make his way up to them and create a plan and we knew they were safe. Praise God. Friends, let's ask Jesus to come and rescue us as well and rescue those we love. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this glorious book, the whole of Scripture, but also this book within a book, this gospel that John wrote. Thank you for his, his aged wisdom. Thank you that this was written after many, many years of following you, of observing you in your life, of watching you die, of hearing your teaching, uh, following your resurrection, of being sent as an apostle into the world, of seeing the church rise up and, and spread like wildfire throughout uh, Palestine, throughout, throughout uh, uh, Samaria, throughout the, the ends of the earth, the Gentile world. Thank you for placing John in Ephesus and for, for challenging perhaps those elders to encourage him to write this gospel to clarify who you are and Lord may I may I ask you that as we continue to study that for us this would not simply be some academic experience of trying to figure things out trying to put the puzzle together although that's important but God, God that as we sit at the feet of Jesus we might experience life and we might experience it abundantly as Jesus proclaimed in John 10 10 but thank you for this time together We love you and we trust you with all of who we are. You are the overcomer. In Jesus' name we pray.